This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by three amazing people. Super Inframan, Allison Cook, and 36 Dingo. If you want to become a patron or a sponsor, go to wheredidtheroadgo.com. And now our show. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And I am joined by Super Inframan. Hello, hello. Octavian of the Strange Dominions podcast. Oh, hello. And Ren of, of Ren. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Back again. Mm-hmm. I, I, I am pleased by this development. <laughs> what was that? Because I'm making it a habit now. Good. Excellent. So, uh, um, I love it. this is the first time we've been on the show together. It is, yeah. Yeah, same. Ben Octavian. So nice to meet you guys. Yeah, nice to meet you. I did not realize Absolutely. that. See what happens when you disappear, Ren? Yeah, no. I get back and it's like a whole new cast of characters. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, this is just going to be a wandering the road episode. We'll just go where it goes. And, uh, but I, I wanted to start with Octavian because you had an interesting day in the woods. Yes, I did. So tell us about it. What happened? Okay, so I'll give you some preface. Um, I have been planning on doing essentially like an on-site episode similar to Strange Familiars, but we would kick it off by doing some kind of ritual and seeing if that kicked up any kind of activity mm-hmm. in an area. And so we were planning on doing it in Gazoo's Woods, which is a forest. It's not even a forest. It's a group of trees, if we're honest, <laughs> in northern Maryland, right outside the PA border. And Tim has done a couple episodes there. He and I had a very weird day. I had a weird day there uh, last year. Um, it's just a very, very strange area with a lot of activity. And it's just it it really goes into the weird side of Bigfoot because of how small this area is. So me and uh, a friend of mine who's been on the show, we were planning on doing uh, basically going to this place at night and doing the headless right and just seeing if anything happened. And so I thought I would take the like take the day today and do a hike and just kind of get a lay of the land because it's been a few months since I've been up there. So I go in and I park at the cemetery that's there and I have my recorder on me, thank God. And I just walk through, you know, I, I walk through the cemetery. I always visit the cemetery. I walk through the trail and the first half of the trail is really pleasant. Like it was really quiet, like eerily quiet, but I didn't get any kind of weird vibes from it. Once I got to basically it's a very, very small little footbridge, everything changed. And, uh, you know, like the this area has a lot more like cover. So it's, it's like a physically darker area because there's more shade mm-hmm. and you just get this weird feeling. And I, for a long time, could never understand when people would say that they get weird feelings in areas because I'm like that just never I never have never really happened for me. Um, but as I've been, you know, getting more into magic and stuff, I've definitely been able to feel more, you know, intuitively and things like that. So I definitely felt kind of like just weird, like something was just kind of off once I got into this area. And this area was also where Tim had seen something when he was with me uh, earlier this year. 
So I keep walking, I get to the pavilion that's there and I sit down on a bench that's in the pavilion and I'm just kind of listening for a while and I didn't hear anything. And so there's like a, um, a platform, I think it's for some kind of like horseshoe game or something, but it's just a little platform uh, made out of the earth with gravel. And I go and sit on that for, you know, a little bit. And I'm just, I don't know, I'm just listening. I'm just, you know, chilling. And to my west, which was to my right, there was what I can only describe to you as rock clacking. Like it was a very distinct sound of sharp clacking. And that was going on for a little while. I started to hear some stuff behind me and to my left. And then out of nowhere, this rock comes flying at me and lands about three feet in front of my feet. And I'm like, okay, all right, that's... I'm by myself. This is a little, this is too much too fast for me right now. And so I left. And that was my weird day in the woods. I'm disappointed you left. Yeah. And I, as I was driving home, like 10 minutes after leaving, I was like, wait, why did I leave? I, I was like, should I go back? I don't know. I'm by my, like, I don't know. I just, it, I, it's a weird feeling and it's impossible to describe. You just have to feel it. It's mm-hmm. one of those things. Like oppressive, like you're not supposed to be there. Yeah, it's a very unwelcoming feeling. Like it really did feel like, uh, you know, something I'm not going to say what I think it was because I have no proof of that. But something it felt like it was very clearly saying, like, all right, today's not the day. Hmm. The uh, the little mound you're on, was that just something that was made as part of the area or? Yeah, I think they use it for games. Oh, OK. Oh, that something. makes perfect sense. OK. Yeah, there's a couple of them around that pavilion area you know so i've never had you know anything like that rock throwing experience or anything but i've certainly been places where i've been like oh i've got to get the hell out of here um and it's something i'm really cognizant of whenever i go into houses or i'm traveling around or anything like that and uh you know it was something i think that uh my mom really reinforced in me too and so I listened for that, but I, I, I can't tell you there's a reason that I do that other than it was just something I grew up being exposed to. Yeah. And like weird sounds in the woods, I have no problem with. Like mm-hmm. that's kind of what I was expecting. I was like, mm-hmm. all right, we'll get some, you know, hopefully maybe some wood knocks. Some, I, I'm even okay with like screams and howls, but something coming at me, like very directly interacting with me, mm-hmm. just a little bit too visceral. Much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It got real, too real too fast. I, I started using that sense of get out of here as a way of controlling fear because it, it sets off that fear response. And being able to kind of defeat that is very useful and possibly yeah. stupid. Yeah, it's not stupid. I mean, you're going to have to figure that out. Like recently I was uh, engaged in some grim war hijinks uh, with some colleagues and I'm pretty sure that's the first time the, the phrase grimoire hijinks has ever been used. <laughs> well, I've used it all the time now. Yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to say that we need to write a book with that as a title. Not sure how much detail I can get into uh, just because there, there are other people than myself involved. But um, at sort of the height of this experience, uh, when a lot of kings and princes and uh, their attendants were showing up, um, I was overcome with this sense of like panic and dread, um, like to the point where it felt like I was maybe having like a panic attack or something like chest height, like sweating. And I just kind of like, you know, bit my lip and went like fought through it until it subsided um, because I knew in the book it said that when the uh, kings arrive, it causes the, you know, the exorcist to feel panic and terror. And 
they'll try to get you to leave the circle and that under no circumstances should you leave the circle. Absolutely. So. <laughs> Grant, can I ask what grimoire you were using? Um, can I guess? Sure. Yeah. That'll be fine. Is it the Luchidarium or the Heptameron? Uh, yes, it was a Luchidarium. Okay, type. I thought it was just, actually, just a- it was an earlier Heptameron that, uh, is not, um, out yet. The translation of it is not out yet, oh, but cool. I was working with the translator. The uh, only reason I knew that is because you said multiple Kings and princes and that in that one, at least they're most of them show up with like a whole gang of them. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the point of it to, to get the whole retinue to show up. Did you, I know that, and actually, I think I told Sarai about this. Uh, there's one class of spirits that before they show up, uh, it even says in the book that two like small children will show up on the outside of the circle trying to get you out of the circle. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I didn't see that during it. Okay. Um, it was an interesting three-part sort of process. Like, we actually started outdoors outside of a circle uh, called the Four Winds um, and, like, called the uh, spirits from each direction. And then we, like, went inside and kind of, like, did a, another version of it uh, just in the, the main sort of living space. And then we actually went to the circle where we, you know, burned incense and stuff. So it was a lengthy conjuration, but um, very impressive. I mean, um, my, my favorite thing about it was afterwards, uh, like not really giving anyone my impressions during the ritual, but afterwards, like when we were all done listening to what everyone was saying to try to like catch things that I had also experienced, you know, as a way to like, so... You know, if you tell someone, oh, did you hear this? They can always just you know, say, oh, yeah, no, I totally heard that or saw that. Um, but if you let them like, go what first, did you hear? That way you don't lead it. Yeah, exactly. Try not to lead the lead the witness. So um, it was interesting how many things were like common. Uh, like right before the spirit showed up, I heard like uh, like hoofbeats in my head. Um, and afterwards, uh, several people mentioned hearing the hoofbeats. And one person, uh, the, the scryer, actually said that, you know, she saw camels and horses and men on horseback and stuff approaching the circle oh was uh, it a trithemius thing no 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 it was um it was from like a early version of the heptameron okay okay yeah did you get knocking? knocking yeah 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 no knocking um okay like most of it was like hearing like murmurs and voices like a voice of like a large crowd of people like talking in my head like hearing the hoofbeats and at one point when the actual spirit who was the uh target of the ritual appeared like in my head i saw like a rose bloom and really yeah like i saw a man with a like a bird head and later on uh you know afterwards i was just listening to people talk and uh, the scryer had mentioned smelling roses when the spirit appeared and uh the next day i was attending a lecture about uh the stuff that we were working on um and i showed a picture of the spirit that we'd conjured and it was a man with a bird's head so there's a nice little uh, reinforcement there the rose thing is really interesting because uh my friend and, and mentor luke has been doing like very very strict goetic work for the last 12 years he uh he'll, he'll never tell me the name of his spirits but the one that one of the most interesting evocations he's done the spirit actually showed up as like a 2d rose bush oh that's super cool yeah I wonder if it was the same spirit. I mean, I, I tend not to say the names of the spirits either, just because. Yeah, that's just wanna, like a pretty common thing within yeah. magic. I want to kind of kind of keep that stuff on the on the down low, but yeah. So, so when you say this that that they start showing up, is this the phenomena you mean, or did you actually see anything manifest? I didn't see anything with my physical eyes. Okay. Manifest. Um, I still haven't been lucky enough to have the uh, the full physical visual manifestation, but. 
Um, I definitely like, you know, felt it. You could feel it mm-hmm. kind of like in your skin and in the room and stuff. Uh, and I could, you know, I heard things in my head that I pretty sure weren't my own thoughts. Right, so. right. And those those same impressions other people uh, in the circle had. And I heard them talking about it afterwards without leading them. So I know I wasn't, uh, you know, implanting those things in other people. But were they things you were expecting to hear? Not really. I didn't know what to expect. I'd never worked this operation before. Okay. So I didn't know what to, do, what to expect because it's very different from the sort of drawing spirits into crystals, trithemian stuff that I normally do. Because I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, when you're when you're in a magical ritual, if someone there is expecting A, they might also be transmitting it mm-hmm. to other people. No, entirely but- possible, yeah. I mean, it's entirely possible a rose thing was, uh, you know, a common transmission between, I mean, maybe, maybe I was picking it up from the scryer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to tell what of that is uh, external and what's internal. Yeah, although you know the the hoof beats and things like, I I don't know if anybody would naturally go to that as the you know uh, harbinger or something coming in. You know, mm-hmm. I mean it's it's possible like as an expectation. Um, you know, I. I Imagine that because I, I knew that we were conjuring like a host of, uh, you know, kings and princes and that sort of thing. So maybe on some level, I expected them to like to arrive on horseback, like a, you know, like a procession. Right, right. Um, so, you know, but then other people also heard that, too. So what about it, any, uh, anything coming in playing musical instruments? I didn't personally hear musical instruments. Um, I'm not sure if anybody else. Did. I don't think anybody mentioned that. I'm just going by a lot of the uh, kings and princes. Usually when at least in the grimoires, they're described as coming with a procession of like lesser spirits playing musical instruments and things like that. Yeah, like Paimon in particular. Yeah. Trumpets and cymbals and that sort of thing. No, nothing of that sort. Um, mostly just like the hoof beats, hearing, you know, voices mumbling and, um, you know, feeling like the impression that something was like in the room with us and, you know, seeing in my head sort of, sort of like images like the rose. You know, the thing about the like the physical manifestation, uh, yeah, my friend, he's very, he's very like... He's like half Lazuski, half not, because he's very adamant that like the first, you know, when you first start working with the spirit, you need to be there for as long as it takes to get them to come to physical manifestation. And I think one of the spirits that he works with on a very regular basis, the first time he conjured it, he's he was there for like six hours, just repeating the conjuration until he got like full manifestation. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, I've never done one for that long. Um, but of course, too, I mean, what's interesting is that in a lot of cases I've done, I haven't gotten the full like physical or visual manifestation, but just, you know, the normal sort of for want of a better term, like psychic impressions that something's there. Right. Um, like what I conjured the spirit for, like happened, you know, like the obviously the the task had been given and they carried out the task, even if I couldn't hear them or see them. Um, and in one case, I ignored the prescriptions for for the magician to wear a silver ring um, to protect themselves from the venomous breath of the spirit. Oh, okay. And uh, the next day I woke up feeling like my lungs were on fire and I was like bedridden for like three days, like coughing and hacking and just feeling like I could barely breathe. Um, for those in the know, you just narrow down the possibilist of spirits. I know that one. That one's a little easy to figure out, but yeah. I've, I've talked about that one before. That's not necessarily a, a very hidden one, but um. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not joking when it says to wear the silver ring. So, uh, dear listener, if if you're going to conjure that particular spirit, please wear the silver ring. Like follow follow the instructions in the book. Just what's funny is that like what I asked for actually all happened, and it led to a really like uh, a really fruitful and productive relationship. 
Um, so it was almost like they couldn't help it, you know, like just that that aura of venom is like something that they can't even necessarily control. It's just like part of being in their presence, mm. you know, it's like something you just have to deal with. It's not necessarily it attacking me. It's just what you have. You know, it's it's just the aura that it gives off. Ren, you'll appreciate this. Uh, I noted during my encounter that all of it took place within the day and hour of Mercury. <laughs> Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's if it's Wednesday, it must be a Mercurian. Yeah. And it was in it was at like from two thirty to two, like to three to three o'clock, basically. So that was, yeah, the, the hour of Mercury as well. Well, John, John, John Keel said you're most likely to see a UFO on a Wednesday. Yeah, I know. I always wondered if like if you, I guess he just got that from the data he had. Yeah. yeah, just the data. Yeah. Actually, part of the the my work in categorizing the Rosales index, uh, part of the categorization, like like fields that I was adding to the reports, was looking at planetary hour and planetary, like you know, like day and day and hour to get an idea if there was particular combinations that were more common, uh, or if certain entities manifested under other certain conditions, but. Um, I haven't really worked too much in that project, so I never really get an answer to that. But mm. uh, you'll be happy to know that I uh, think I successfully convinced Aaron Goulias to switch time slots with me at Strange Reality so that I can do the ritual I'm leading in uh, the planetary hour of the sun nice. <laughs> instead of Mars. Nice. I was like, I looked at the time slot and it was like, because it's a Venus operation. And I was like, well, I can't do the hour of Venus because then that would overlap with the last presentation and Chris's like movie and all that kind of stuff. It's like maybe too much bridge too far. But I was like, if I switch with Aaron, then I'll be going from the planetary hour of Mars to the planetary hour of the sun. And like, at least I won't be doing it, you know, in a, in a planet that is diametrically opposed to Venus. So. <laughs> And by the time this airs, that will have already happened, I think. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. well, <laughs> let me know how how, uh, how goofy we looked on the live stream. <laughs> that, that is something I'm a little worried about because, I mean, have you guys seen the, the Poke Runyon Secrets of Solomon, like VHS tape? Yes, no. of course. Yeah. I so I'm a little worried if that the live stream of us performing the Via Solis Elixir Rite is going to look a little Secrets of Solomon. Um, What's the Secrets of Solomon thing? It, it was Poke Runyon basically going through a, a, a Solomonic procedure, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, no, it is. And him and his uh, Temple of Astarte people, Order of Astarte, whatever they are. But it was on like cheap VC VHS in what, the early, late 80s or early 90s? It's like early 90s, I yeah. think. So it definitely has that kind of quality to it. Yeah, it's got the sort of public access television kind of quality uh, actually i know that sarai doesn't get amazon but anyone who's listening and you want to see it is on amazon i think it's free yeah i think it's just on youtube too i think you can just look it up on youtube and it's all there as well if you just like youtube like poke runyon or whatever um but that's the thing about ritual like when you're doing ritual when you're in it like you don't really think about how goofy or at least you shouldn't think about how goofy everything looks but if you're just watching it from the outside, you're like, this is the silliest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> when I do my Hikate <laughs> and things like that, my altar is on the like the screened in porch. So I'm the only one who goes out there, but mm -hmm. it's not private at all. So like mm -hmm. neighbors can absolutely see what I'm doing. Anyone inside can look through the door and see what I'm doing. And because I there's no like I don't have any kind of privacy, like mm -hmm. in my own room or anything in, in this house. I'm always a little bit like, oh, God, how, do, how is someone looking at me? Like, what do they think I'm doing? Like, I have that self-conscious uh, moment every once in a while when I'm doing it. 
yeah. So we'll we'll have to see how that goes. I mean, hopefully we we look cool doing it. But um, <laughs> just to add some good special yeah. effects and explosions, you'll be fine. Yeah, really. I mean, you need somebody to like flicker the lights or something during that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you ever see? Um, are you familiar with BJ Swain? Yeah, yeah. I am. Have you ever seen his videos on YouTube? No, I, I didn't know he had a YouTube channel. Yeah, it's uh, Ar- Ararata418. Um, okay. He does a couple videos of him what? doing a trithemius operation at the uh, William Blake Lodge in Baltimore because he's a thelemite. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are those are interesting. Yeah, I, uh, like a lot of the trithemian stuff, I, I feel like um, a couple years ago, it, it like had the whole resurgence in popularity, I think, because yeah, of that. He, so he, like Seven Spheres came out. And yeah. BJ has his Luminarium, which is just even, an even more stripped down Trithemius uh, based operation as well. Hmm. How could you strip it down even further? I don't know. It's been a while since I've read it. I need to reread it again because I need to have him on because I had him on for Living Spirits. I told him I would have him on for Luminarium as well. I mean, you could definitely strip it down from from what Ash and Tristan wrote, like in Gateways oh, Through yeah. Circle. Because he um, just basically did Drawing Spirits into Crystals, but a, like with a slight variation, but it's pretty by the book. It's by the book, but he also throws in a bunch of stuff that's like from Franz Barden and, and other things, like uh, fluid condensers, which is definitely not in the Magus. No. Um, I mean, the actual drawing spirits into crystals from Francis Barrett's Magus is like, uh, it's like a page or two. It's like not a very long operation. You know, it's not super involved. Um, I think the best, I mean, if people are curious about the Trithemian operation and system, um, check out Sam Block's Digital Ambler blog. He's got like a whole, uh, just do like search like Trithemian recap or something like that. And he's got probably the best series of like articles and, and instructions on that method. And it's all free. It, what was his name again, Ren? Uh, Sam Block. Okay. Yeah, his uh, website is Digital Ampler. Ren, have you ever done anything with the uh, the PGM? Um, just the you know Stella of Ju, like the headless ride. Um, but I haven't worked any like other spells or anything from it. Okay, because I'm in uh, 50 Rights for 50 Nights, uh, the Jack Grail course at Blackthorn School. Really cool. I recommend it to anyone who's interested in. Uh, that form of ceremonial magic. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I'm familiar with Jack's work. Um, a copy of the Hecata- the Hecatian just came in today. Super excited about that. Oh, cool. Yeah, my extent of like Greek magical interest um, was like a couple of years ago. I was really interested in, in Greek necromancy, and so I was reading some of Daniel Ogden's books. Um, those are like scholarly books about like their traditions and stuff. Because um, I I was convinced that I could understand the root of like Solomonic magic if I was looking at older Greek traditions because they also involve magic. Well, it stems and, from that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. Which, um, also, this is like another interesting thing. I don't know. I, I just found this out like recently, but that the um, the Solomon referenced in Solomonic magic um, may not actually be the biblical King Solomon. It is sort of because like in the Testament of Solomon, like it's obviously talking about the biblical King Solomon. Um, but that there was also a magician in Thebes or a, a Jewish rabbi named Solomon. Oh, um, yeah. I had, think it's unlocking the mysteries of magic from Skinner. And that's like yeah. his grimoire. Yeah, exactly. And um, he had two students. One was named Taz, the Greek, or like could also be transliterated Stoth, and Honorius, which is where you get like the uh, the sworn book or Liber Geratus. Oh, like Pope Honorius? Not Pope Honorius, but just Honorius, just uh, Honorius of Thebes. He was a, a jobbing sorcerer in Thebes, a student of Rabbi Solomon. Okay. And 
these three guys end up getting conflated into what we know today as Hermes Trismegistus. Oh, who, that's really like, ah, okay. Yeah, because like basically Hermes Trismegistus was an amalgamation of these like three different sorcerers like ideas. And what's interesting is that they all have sort of different flavors. Like uh, like Rabbi Solomon, all of his stuff is obviously like very Jewish influenced. It's very strict. Like by the book, you've got to follow all of the instructions and include all the things. But then Taz the Greek is much more like loose in his interpretation of the rituals and, and is like, no, you can make substitutions and you can use different things. You don't have to follow it by the book. Um, and I, I just I love how over the course of like history that these possibly just like three real normal people who did magic in, in Thebes at the time um, end up becoming semi mythical and then like combined into a single individual that, you know, you have all these legends and stuff about. I think we should still be like pretending that Solomon is still writing grimoires. You know what I mean? Like how all these <laughs> like old magicians were just writing as, you know, saying that their books were authored by Solomon or Honorius yeah. or any of these. I think we should continue that tradition. Yeah. In a lot of cases, I mean, that isn't the whole thing with the Heptameron is that it's probably not actually Peter Devano. Right, yeah. You know, a lot of these cases you would you would when you were publishing one of these books, you would use the name of like a you know, like like Francis Bacon or like a, a well-known philosopher or scientist or natural philosopher or whatever um, to give it like credibility. Yeah. Uh, just like the fourth book of occult philosophies. Right. Probably not actually Agrippa, you know, maybe some of it is Agrippa, but how much of this stuff do you think? didn't like like was literally just made up but then over time with people using the practices they've actually created something that is what was made up well i mean definitely feel it was like, made up originally i definitely feel like the th like the the people who were writing these grimoires were actually practicing it mm -hmm. but i also think that there were cuz and ren you can probably talk a little bit more about this it's a broken tradition so we're still piecing together a complete system. Like people have made up their own systems, but it, we don't have that singular original system that everything is based on. So while we have the core, a lot of the core elements of it, we're still, people are still kind of trying out new things mm -hmm. that weren't probably from the original system. Yeah. I mean, you can boil it down to like sort of like key gestalts, right? Like uh, the use of a magic circle. Uh, the making of offerings to, to spirits. And you can just kind of assume that like there is some proto practice uh, that I mean, you know, there there's magic circles in Neanderthal caves. Right. So right. it probably goes back into extremely ancient, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Are you guys familiar with Samuel David? Mm -hmm. OK, so he wrote uh, Order of Rod and Ring, and he is basically a, uh, a reconstructionist Mesopotamian pagan. And he wrote this book, and it's a system of Mesopotamian uh, devotion and, and magic. And but it's all very well sourced. And he, you know, notes how far back this sort of current of Solomonic magic goes as far as the techniques. And it is like all of the core stuff is there from the really the cradle of civilization onto now. So that's the cool. That's what I think is the coolest part about Solomonic magic is that you have while it is a broken tradition, the lineage is largely still intact and you can see how these practices are more or less unchanged throughout these thousands and thousands of years. I, I like that's one of my cool. That's one of the coolest things to me. Yeah, like I, I highly encourage you if they're interested in this to look at uh, books on Taoist sorcery, um, specifically like the the Taoist altar is a is a good book on this topic. 
And one of the interesting things you'll start to realize is that um, a lot of the same elements that you see in Western magic and Western ceremonial magic is also present in Tao sorcery. You know, like you have very similar magical weapons. You have the use of circles. You have, you know, banishings, conjurations, spirit registers. Um, I think this technology, you know, it, it's one of those things where there, there is like a proto technology here that has been interpreted and experimented with based on whatever cultural context that the practitioners within, you know, like each sort of culture comes up with its own little like flares on it and changes on it. But there is some sort of like underlying root structure to it. Mm, okay. But I, just, I, you know, I am interested in the idea of like, where did the where did the root come from? You know, yeah. take it. You could take the origin literally and, and actually, you know, play around with the idea of because one of the things that gets sort of overlooked is the idea that a lot of magic is taught by the spirit. So you conjure the spirit and then you ask it to give you new methods of contacting that spirit or other spirits that do other specific tasks. And so if you, you know, take that literally, and I kind of do, um, you can go back to the original, you know, the original story and play around with that idea of a spirit coming and giving whatever first magician there was these techniques. And then they just built on that by contacting other spirits. Mm. In tradition, you have um, not. Um, you dropped out. You dropped out for a moment there, Ren. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so you have in like in Enochian, uh, not the John D. Enochian, but just in the Book of Enoch sense uh, mythology, you have, you know, the, the angel Simyaza and his watchers basically transmitting the first magical knowledge to like women that they were sleeping with, basically. You know, they, they lusted after human women and they taught those women things like metallurgy and root cutting and magic and how to make jewelry and makeup and all, all sorts of different technologies. Um, so, like, it, it is interesting. Like, was there some sort of original, you know, I don't know, like flying saucer contact type deal where a person or a group of people came into contact with some sort of numinous entity that taught them the basic structure of like magic? Well, um, if you look at the, the stuff Laird Scranton suggests that there's a coexistent universe, you know, we, we could be in contact with them, but you also get the, the, like with ayahuasca, you know, the natives said the the plants told them how to make it. I was actually thinking about that, uh, specific thing, uh, a while ago, because as I've been, you know, getting into this and really, uh, delving into animist philosophy, I started to think about like my own psychedelic experiences and this idea that everything has a spirit and like plant spirits are very um, readily available and they seem to be easy to work with for a lot of people. Um, and this is a really big part of traditional witchcraft um, going back to like the 1500s and things like that. And so I, I started to really ponder this idea that the things that we see when we're on psychedelics, yeah. I definitely think that our brains are interpreting something and that they're the things we're seeing is a part of us. But I also wonder if we're not interacting with like objective spirits of these substances. Entirely possible. Um, I keep I, I keep imagining something like, um, you know, uh, early, early man in a cave with a candle, you know, uh, doing the handprints on the wall and some entity encountering them in the cave or something like that, because well, I think they did a lot of drugs before they would go into that too. Don't am I remembering that right? Yeah. Um, but it would be fascinating. You know, we'll never be able to do this. But if you could find out what they thought they were seeing and how similar that is to what we see now when people try ayahuasca and things like that. Well, yeah. we, we know from the cave paintings that they're very similar. Yeah, yeah. 
which is uh, it gives weight to the idea that there's something out there beyond just what's in our heads, right? Yeah, yeah, I would think so. I mean, for sure, it go back to Tepe. Um, the there are like pits that like it looked like like a beer was brewed in. Yeah, and there's like uh, evidence of like you know psychedelic mushroom spores and stuff also being in that brew. So that you know you have. All these people, I think it was probably Amanita, not not psilocybinensis, but um, you have all of these people drinking Amanita beer, uh, you know, in a star temple at night, probably going buck wild. Like, yeah, they, they probably saw some stuff. <laughs> I think even Aaron Leach talks about how, like, there are certain grimoires that prescribe um, you, you're allowed to, you know, normally in that nine day period of, of abstinence and fasting, you can uh, drink every once in a while. And uh, I, I can't remember which glitch bottle episode it was, but Aaron Leach was talking about these parties that magicians would have where they were summoning things, but they were also either high on drugs or like extremely drunk. And that was like a totally normal part of it. Yeah. I mean, during the operation that I did, we we had a lot of wine. It was like, you know, between each sort of, of the major movements of the, um, the operation, we, we all passed around a bottle of wine and stuff. So we were all nice and toasted by the end of it. <laughs> Going back to like the the lineage and stuff like that, um, I was in the Hale Hakate course by Jack Rail through the Blackthorn School, and uh, he was going through this thing called the Libation Bearers. And it's a play from ancient Greece um, about this brother and sister whose father has died. And their stepmother is, I think, stealing money or, or something like that. And they go to his grave and they need to basically they want to do a necromantic ritual where they essentially piss off the spirit of their father and make him as restless as possible and then get him to either go and kill the stepmother or get another spirit to do so. And the way they would do that is just by like tormenting him verbally, like talking about how, you know, he'll never uh, drink wine again. He'll never feel the touch of a woman again, like just really pissing him off to get him to do this thing. And that's a thing throughout necromancy. And it kind of brought up in my mind about these ghost hunters who go into a house and antagonize the spirit to get activity. It's this really interesting lineage of activity that goes back through history. And I don't even think a lot of ghost hunters are, are conscious of that. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Yeah. They probably aren't aware. What a horrible way of doing necromancy though. Jesus. Well, that's like the con that's the, that's how it's done. Like in a lot of these traditional texts, uh, I think even the, um, in hermetic stuff, Rufus Opus talks about how, the only spirits that can be contacted of the dead are restless spirits. And so, yeah, there's that's why a lot of the necromantic rituals in the PGM talk about going doing it where men have died violently or been murdered or things like that. But if you can't find anything like that, just go to a spirit that you think is rested and just go piss him off and then you can get him to do whatever you want. And traditionally speaking, uh, spirits are good at two things, killing people and getting you money. Those are what they know how to do. Um, and I've always wondered, and I, as I've been doing my podcast, I've been wondering if I could like talk some ghost hunters into contemplating this idea that they are, they're participating in a necromantic tradition without even realizing. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. they're doing necromancy. I mean, whether or not they realize that that is what they're doing, that, that's what they're doing. They're trying to communicate with the dead. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's not the dead that they're communicating with. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I guess I could be on board with the idea that restless, the restless dead are maybe a little easier to contact, but I don't necessarily think that that's totally the case either. Like there, there's plenty of ways to contact the dead. I mean, you can look at the work of Raymond Moody and this, his use of the psychomantium 
for people to contact their like dead loved ones. Oh, and there's also ancestor work. So like not every necromantic ritual involves pissing off the dead. Uh, yeah. But I think within the ceremonial system, uh, at least in in the idea that you need that there are abilities that spirit that the dead have, we'll call them shades just to differentiate them. Um, when working with shades, you want them to do certain things. And the ones that can do those things best, are the ones that are kind of pissed off about it in the first place. Yeah, but you can also just contact shades for information. I mean, like, um, like I'm just thinking of the example of Odysseus, right? Contacting yeah. Tiresias to get information about stuff that's going on. He and Odin, He contacted the witch to find out about Ragnarok. Yeah. Um, but then I, again, you go back to that lore, and mm-hmm. that witch was pissed as hell. She kept <laughs> saying, like, this is what's going to happen in Ragnarok. Don't bother me again this is what's going to happen this day don't bother me again you're really me off now but this is what's going to happen now and so yeah this it's interesting that this whole um pissing off the dead to get information is still prevalent within a lot of these different traditions yeah and in the bible uh samuel pisses off i forget who he's trying to to conjure with the witch of indoor but it's like um he gets pissed off because he gets conjured because he's like man what are you doing god is going to be so pissed at you for doing this what the is your problem? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I do think that um, what what's funny is uh, people, you know, especially people who are just getting into to ceremonial magic and stuff, are always talking about like offerings and oh, should you offer blood to spirits or whatever? No. Yeah, no, you shouldn't. First of all, why well, not? Well, then, like you, you just open up this door. And uh, Jason Miller, who I don't agree with a lot on, uh, I do agree with him on this that you should never. Like, don't give in to a spirit's demands. Like, don't just do whatever the spirit says. You need to lay boundaries. And when you start giving blood to a spirit, then you've you've now made that a precedent. And you're going to be expected to, be, you know, continue giving blood, especially if you're giving your blood. That's a lot of blood you're going to have to give a spirit because you have to give it on a regular basis. Otherwise, it's not going to want to work with you. Mm. Yeah, don't little shop awards yourself, you know, like. But also, too, like, honestly, if people are, are new at this stuff or interested in it, like, as a rule of thumb, you shouldn't be offering anything to the spirits anyway. Just just don't do it you know like especially if you're if you're doing like i honestly don't do much like goisha or anything with demons uh for years now because i find angels much more agreeable and easier to work with and i don't have to like wrangle them like you do with demons but if you are dealing with demons like uh you don't owe them anything you shouldn't be offering them anything (laughs) like you're you're binding them against their will to do something for you like you don't that's not how you negotiate but yeah, there's definitely like that mode and that's the traditional mode. Uh, and I, I think even my uh, my friend Luke, that's how he does it. But uh, but there is a um, a precedent for offerings to spirits as a like a reward and as an encouragement for them to do what you ask them to do faithfully, as well as the binding. Like, you know, they're they're bound regardless. But just to kind of sweeten the deal a little bit, you can kind of be like, you know, if you do this for me then I will do this in your name or you will get this incense every, you know, something like that. Slippery slope. I think that I think the reward should be you not tormenting them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm all stick, no carrot. So, so, so what, what do you feel is the difference between an angel and a demon? Like, where do you draw that line? What's the difference? Um, it has to do where with the, uh, let's say the cosmological location of the spirit. So, so demons would be, either infernal or chthonic entities, entities that are sublunar in nature. They're, they're earth, earthly spirits. Um, angels but, uh, are... But there's a difference between like them and nature spirits. Like nature no, 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 spirits. Yes, 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but they're the, the key term there is sublunar, right? They're they're not uh, celestial spirits, right? Like so, Air celestial spirits. spirits like like angels are like governors. Okay, I mean, I'm, this gets in all the like Neoplatonism crap, but like my cosmological view of the universe is that all of physical reality is the uh, filtering down of you know divine endless light um, through the different you know seven spheres of traditional astrology, um, like a prism, and those filters create what we experience in the physical world. And each one of those filters has certain like archetypal values associated with it. Um, and the angels are the governors of those spheres, right? Like they direct the flow of divine light into what we experience as physical reality, material reality. Um, distinction, um, and this just goes back to traditional grimoire lore, angels can, so angels have free will, whereas sublunar spirits do not. Uh, you can conjure up a, uh, a sublunar spirit and bind it against its will all day long, but you cannot do that with an angel. You can invoke them and you can invite them to join you in the crystal or however, whatever medium you're using. But ultimately, it's up to them if they come and it's also up to them if they do, if they want to do what you ask. They can absolutely say no. And uh, my my friend Luke, he's had that a couple times where like he's conjured an angel and he's asked the angel to do this thing and the angel just flat out said no. And like you, there's nothing you can do about that. You can't punish an angel. Yeah. And honestly, but see, like that's why I try to anybody who approaches me looking to get into mad, like this type of magic, I encourage them to work with angels because look like on some level, like the the fact that you can't bind them and force them to do things and that. Um, you're on more, let's say, like equal footing in terms of the the interaction. Um, gets rid of a lot of like the danger that's inherent to working with sublunar spirits, right? Like with sublunar spirits, you need all these precautions, you need bindings, you have to test the spirit, you have to threaten them, um, you have to be like fully aware that they might try to get out of whatever you know you you try to make them do. That's why the binding is so important because and Skinner's mentioned this multiple times. You can mess up every aspect of the procedure, but if you get the binding right, then more more or less you'll get what you want relatively without harm. It also, what I don't think, like the thing that still, even if you bind them, though, it's like I don't know, you're still like making enemies in in the wrong places by doing that kind of thing. And I just, I'm like. Why deal with all that crap when I could just work with angels where, like, I don't have to deal with any of this stuff um, and I don't have to worry. I don't have to look behind my back, you know, like I, like either they do the thing or they don't. But honestly, if there's anything going on in your life uh, that absolutely requires the success of a magical operation to take care of, like that, that's no good anyway. <laughs> like you shouldn't be doing magic for things that you absolutely need to happen. Um, consider it like a supplemental activity rather than angels can also, um, like give you advice on things. So if you ask for something, they can be like, well, you know, yeah, I could do that. But like, there's this other area of your life that really needs addressing. Can we like do that instead? Cause that's going to help you a lot more. Yeah. And, and generally that's the thing, like, you know, we mentioned that angels kind of have a choice about whether or not they want to do something for you, but I've in all of my experience, I've found them to be extremely helpful. Like they, they want to help. Like they're, they don't even care. Like I'm not a Christian. They don't care. Like, yeah, because they're they, not Christian either. Yeah, they're not. I mean, ultimately, they're not Christian either. You're totally right. But like, they, they just like they want to help people. Like they, yeah, they, they want to be in the corner. Or sympathetic to mankind, whereas spirit, they. And this is one of the things that I, I after learning about a lot, a lot about this. 
I want to reiterate this so many times whenever I hear someone say like, oh, it's a demon. Demons don't want to be here. Like it's extremely uncomfortable for them to be in our sphere of existence. They hate yeah. it. It's like being underwater for us, basically. So this idea that there are just demons running around the earth torturing people and pissing them off and like scaring them is just so uh antithetical to everything that we know about how spirits and and chthonic spirits specifically interact yeah for sure um i i do i don't know part of me does think though that there there can be issues with let's just call them like wandering demons all right. Like they, they do happen and they do do things like cause sickness and torment people and things like that. Um, I don't know why they're here, why they're doing it, uh, because at least the the quote unquote demons that you conjure with, with like Solomonic magic, obviously, like don't want to be here against their will. Um, but also, if, if the if it wasn't true that there were wandering spirits that were tormenting people, that there wouldn't be exorcists. Right. Like the, the whole practice of this type of magic wouldn't exist in the first place. I mean, it's a good people can remember that's like the the whole point of the story and like the Testament of Solomon is that Solomon was like going like all of these demons were out, you know, tormenting his people and causing trouble. And part of that mythic narrative is that he bound them all basically to like, you know, keep them from causing plagues and like ruining crops and destroying buildings and stuff. And he like put them to work building his temple. Mm. And, and so like that's why on some level, like if you've got the stomach for it, like doing that kind of work, I think, is holy work in the sense that like you're taking these wild forces of like chaos and and sort of imposing order onto them right and like putting them to work doing constructive things hopefully you know that's also why i worry about a lot of people doing this kind of stuff being obsessed with like treasure hunting and money magic and and that sort of thing because i'm like that that's not really i don't know maybe it's just because i'm like i live a relatively privileged existence where like i don't have to worry about a lot of things like that so maybe i i have a different perspective on this but i I do worry that people get so obsessed with material stuff when they're when they're looking into this type of magic or wanting to work this type of magic and honestly the, the most rewarding magic that i've done using like angels and other things is like healing people and like uh like stopping storms from like doing damage to to you know communities and things like that you know like i just i think it's the role of the magician to help other people in your community not to like enrich yourself you know i definitely agree with that i will say as someone who is uh on the opposite end of the financial (laughs) spectrum uh there's like two rituals that i want to do in my early uh, conjuration career that are money, but it's not money just to have money. It's money just to be able to do other things that are helpful to me and everyone around me. Mm-hmm. Most of what I want to use spirits for is information, um, both, you know, in just practical human matters and also in the paranormal. That's like one of the, the big thing that I want to use magic for is really invest in seeing how we can investigate the paranormal using these uh, magical technologies and these entities. So when when you say angels talk to you and tell you different things, what do you how do you define that, Octavian? From what I understand, um, the so I'll just give the only context I have is what I've heard from my friend and what I've heard from people like B.J. Swain and things like that. Um, when Luke has done some angelic things, he has said that the like the just the mere presence of the angels like shakes the whole house. Um, the, there's a massive emotional toll, like you just are overcome with emotion. Um, you, I think he's heard angels speak directly to him like two or three times, but for the most part, 
it's been through um, images and like internal feelings. Mm. Uh, but when they do speak, I mean, it's almost incomprehensible. Like you can barely like you can understand it, but it, it takes a, it, it's just a massive toll on your body because you just cannot really handle it. It's it's very hard on us. And, and I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah. <laughs> you can also meet these entities in dreams, you know, and in a lot of cases, it's a whole lot easier. You don't you don't have all those physical side effects. And a lot of times it's much easier for them to communicate clearly and coherently in dreams. Right. Like in my own <laughs> Like HGA practice, like my HGA usually just meets me in a dream, right? And like, uh, like the last time we had a little session, um, he, we were in a bookstore together, and he was showing me all of these books, uh, and they were like grimoires that I'd never seen before, and it had like spirit seals in them that I'd never seen before, spirit names, and I was just like, oh my god, this is amazing! It's such like a cool book. I got, I gotta buy this book. I've never seen any of this stuff before. Um, but the problem was I didn't realize it was a dream because, you know, not a not a perfect <laughs> dream warrior. And uh, I woke up and didn't remember anything that he tried to show me in that right, dream. Of course. Right. Yeah. My answer, by the way, because my cat stepped on my keyboard and it brought up a spotlight. And so I don't know if anyone heard what I said. No. Mm, what did you say? No. Oh, OK. Damn. Um, what I was saying was that because Sarai asked me what do they sound like, like how do they speak or how oh do yeah they no sound? we heard all that oh okay all okay, right. we heard sure. that. Yeah, okay. um that that brings up a point though Octavian have you um are you familiar with like the Estes method oh yeah have you tried using that in conjuration not well I haven't done so here's the thing about me in conjuration. I'm physically unable to do it uh, at this uh, like at this time because of where I live and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I just don't have all the materials and, and a place to do it. Um, so that's why I've been doing a lot of PGM stuff is because it's kind of like the beginner's guide to uh, ceremonial magic because that's where the source really is. But um, yeah, like once I get into the actual Solomonic stuff, I'm definitely going to experiment with the Estes method. And I also want to try putting a Ouija board in the triangle and seeing what I can get from that. Yeah, that's a good idea as well. Um, I, I've used Estes method several times with with uh, conjurations and I have gotten excellent results every time. Uh, I think it's something that uh, maybe a lot of TV shows show people using it in a very uncontrolled, non-ritualized manner where they're just kind of being like, you know, you who is anybody out there who wants to chat? Yeah, uh, it works. But uh, if you want to get actual information, maybe add in a ritual element where you conjure a specific entity and then uh, utilize the sphere box as a method for them to communicate with you. Yeah. One of the things that, so like a lot of the magic that I do, it's not, I don't even know if I would consider it like magic from the traditional definition, but um, I just go out into the woods and I do like offerings to the land spirits just to try and work them first um, because I'm really unable to get like get into the chthonic stuff. Um, and yeah. I've tried doing like hitting re- like record on my phone or bringing the uh, my audio recorder and just sitting it there and then giving the offering, saying the invocation and then just waiting and seeing if anything can talk through that. I haven't gotten any results with that yet. But um, yeah, oh, I like that a lot. Um, I just want to ask this question of you all real quick. I had a dream years ago where uh, I guess I was arguing with uh, the universe or something like that. And uh, the phone rang. And so and this was like the old rotary tan phone. And I picked it up and I got answered by a chorus of voices for what I was arguing with uh, over the phone. 
Um, and I've always tried to kind of put that in some kind of context, but in my head, I had decided that that was some type of, you know, angelic spirit trying to communicate to me in a way that I could, uh, uh, accept and wouldn't overwhelm me. Mm-hmm. Maybe the Fae. Maybe. <laughs> and this was, you, you, the phone was in your dream, right? Like you answered the phone in your dream. Yes. The phone was in my dream. Yes. Yeah. It's entirely possible. I mean, like I, I've, I've had multiple sort of experiences and dreams where I knew that there was, um, you know, a spirit like communicating with me, though, though it's usually like more direct, like they would physically be there in the room mm-hmm, with me and mm-hmm. say things or show me things. Um, but I, I think that that's definitely a, an easier middle ground for them to communicate. And the same holds true in necromancy, because like mm-hmm. most necromantic operations, especially like the Greek tradition are like, yeah, you can do the circle and do the chants and, and offer, make all the offerings and, you know, cut an ox's throat so that the spirits can drink the blood and take form and everything. Or you can just like go to sleep, you know, (laughs) and just like meet them in a dream, which honestly, like I I think people the problem there is that people like have a weird they have like weird uh, conceptions of like what dreams are. And they think like, well, if it happens in a dream, then it wasn't real. Right. Like it's not valid. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's not at all how the ancients thought about dreams, right? If it happened in a dream, it's just as valid as anything that happens to you in real life, perhaps even more so. Yeah. You know, because that's really like what, you know, if you want to go this way. Um, the, the, the land of dreams is where spirits, that's where they are. That is a real world. Like that is an objective place. It's just, it's out, it's outside of our time. It's not material. Right. right. Yeah. Take- it's like what, um, Bob Monroe referred to as, I think, locale B. Like it's, it's a, it's a place. It's like a place that you can go to. You know, just not in the flesh. Well, take- are you familiar with uh, the Robin Artisan? Mm-mm. No, I'm not. Well, let's okay. let, let's let's take oh, a quick sorry. break here, and we'll okay. come right back and continue this conversation. Awesome. Check out wheredidtheroadgo.com. You will find an archive of every show, right back to the very first one that aired January 26, 2013. There's links to all of our social media, Discord, Facebook, the Facebook group, Twitter, YouTube. You can pick up merch at our store that is linked on the page. You can become a Patreon and get extra content every month for as little as $3 a month. You can leave a donation, go through blog entries, and you can contact us if you have stories you'd like to share for a future listener stories episode. Stories at wheredidtheroadgo.com is the place to send them. For general contact, it's contact at wheredidtheroadgo.com. And if you want to mail me something, you can do so at P.O. Box 444, Ovid, New York, 14521. I want to take a moment here to thank all of my Patreons and give a special shout out to those of you pledging $10 or more. Chuck Shudders, Leanne Cherry, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, 36 Dingo, CJ, Tim, Andrew Nichols, Matthew Sproul, Christine, a blue second gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gaiaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Ann Witowski, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy and Communicable, Christopher Ernst, Craig Cicernos, Craig Parmenter, Diane B., MTK, Eric Todd, Jay, James Lattimore, James Lindsay, Jim Pyre, Joanna Rojas, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L., Laser Printer Jam, Lauren McLean, Linz Jackson K, Luke Osborne, MJ Armstrong, Jim and Sophie, Mark Brady, Matt in Delaware, Patricia W, Paul Jeffries, Philosopher of Mirrors, Ray Benedetto, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupre, Sam Sharon, 
Stacy Sherwood, tactical therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Oli Andre Olar, Varosh K, Vincent Trewell, Walker, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Stephen D, Amber Hall, and Craig Sagastumi. Thank you all so very much. This show would not be what it is without all of you. All right, so I'm here with Ren and Super Inframan and Octavian. And Octavian, you were about to ask Ren something. Well, is just anyone. Um, so Robin Artisan is a an author and traditional witch. Um, and his book, The Clovenstone Workings, which came out in 2020, I've been slowly working through. I've only done the first right, which isn't even anything to do with spirits. It's just like a um, it's what he calls a profane scrying where you sit in front of a, a mirror in a poorly lit room and you basically just watch your face distort. And it's totally psychological. Like you're it, it's based on the effect that when your brain is staring at something and it doesn't have any stimulus, it'll just start making stuff up to entertain itself. Yeah. And uh, so that's all I've done. But most of the work in his book is all dream based. Like you do rituals in waking life and then the result and the communication comes in dream form. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, incubation is like one of the most powerful forms of magic and it's accessible to everyone, you know, like incubation. Yeah, incubation. Like it's it's what the, the Greeks, the Greek term for it is like dream incubation. Okay. So you're sort of setting something up in waking life that you then experience in a dream. Okay. All right. I've found some dreams to be incredibly useful lately, however, not so much. How so? They just been I've just been on a track of pretty uninteresting dreams lately. I get disappointed when my dreams aren't interesting. See, my problem is my dreams are always just cuckoo, crazy, psycho land. <laughs> and because of that, I have I cannot differentiate what like if there are spirits talking to me in my dream, it's <laughs> I, I don't I can't like pick it out. Yeah. I can't like identify if there's something objectively external communicating to me in the guise of what is just right, normally right. on in my brain during sleep. Well, I had. Right. I had a dream where there was this large block, crystalline black sort of thing, and I chipped a piece of it off that I wasn't supposed to and took it with me, and then I realized that that looked exactly like the stuff in the game Control. <laughs> and I'm like, that was just a Control dream. All right. So, Ryan, did I ever tell you the dream about that I had about you and Tim? I don't know. Okay, so this was a really weird one. I'm scared. Sorry, you had bought or you inherited a Walmart Supercenter. Oh. And emptied it out, and you would put in, like, a section of forest. And Tim <laughs> was like, hey, do you want to go look for Bigfoot in Soraya's Walmart forest? And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, we went looking for Bigfoot in your Walmart forest. I want this to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't remember what happened after that, but yeah, that was a really interesting dream. I think I wrote it down. Now, is that name brand Bigfoot or just the, the store <laughs> brand Bigfoot at that point? <laughs> hmm. I, at least in my experience, I know when I'm encountering something in a dream or in an out-of-body experience that is like external to me and not yeah. just some character that I've, I've created. Like, um, like yeah. years ago, I remember you know having a dream. I was walking around my old high school at dark and... I met this like hooded entity that uh, told me its name um, and it had an Aleph Lamed at the end. And he uh, I asked him to show me his his sign 
And so he pointed into the sky and, and traced out like in the sky, like what his, his M, like symbol was. And so like in that case, like, OK, this is a pretty legitimate spirit contact. And it, it, it flips the other way, too, because like in some cases, it's, you know, my, my HGA that I've made contact with. He appears every now and then um, in other cases. And for anyone who uh, doesn't know, HGA is Crowley's term for the holy guardian angel or higher self. Yeah, I, I don't think higher Brad, self. are you using it like the Abermelon version where it's an external spirit? Yeah, I consider okay. I know he's external because after I made contact and got his name, I found his name in a grimoire that I had never read before. Oh, that's, that's a, listed not cool. Term. And uh, and what he has his office is over and stuff. I actually also had um, a nice little confluence with the situation around his, his contact and my own astrological chart and stuff. So I consider him my, you know, my personal genius. You know, he's my my spirit that that teaches me things and is, you know, got my back. I there's a, a ritual from the discovery of witchcraft that apparently a lot like you summon four or five infernal spirits and they're then give you a magical assistant and that becomes your like uh your holy daemon so to speak mm. yeah 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 I, you know and i so every now and then though i'll have uh dreams about like there was one recently i had and that it disturbed me enough that like i like actually wrote it down um but it was basically i had a dream that this old lady uh very like miss chalfond like twin peaks kind of character took me into this old um like it's like a strip mall and it was like an abandoned store in a strip mall and she like took me down into the basement and i remember everything smelled like like rotting wood just like really awful stench of like decay and in the basement there was like a group of people who had a uh like a woman like captive and they made me stand there and watch while they like carved her to pieces Mm. and like while she was alive and i remember thinking that whole time like this is like when i woke up i was like okay that was something trying to psychologically like harm me you know like that was a spirit that i just had a dream about but it was like a nasty one gotcha. you know gotcha so like in that case like it was different from a nightmare in the sense that like it felt uh malicious you know like like something was putting me through this rather than my own brain putting me through it you know right yeah that makes perfect sense go, go ahead try no go ahead uh, when I was in my early 20s, I had probably about a year of uh, dreams like that, Ren, and it was not fun. You know, and like I know my anxiety dreams. I know my nightmares. Yeah. But uh, and that's one of the reasons that I've been very wary of what I do magically, because mm -hmm. it just felt like stuff was attached to me for the entire year. Yeah. And would find different ways to torment me at night. And there was nothing going on externally in my life to have caused that either. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I certainly felt the effects of it and it seemed to, you know, like monkey's paw kind of thing, like with everything though. Yeah. It's, you can definitely tell when it's something that is, uh, like you said, like attaching itself to you, right? Like sort of feeding off of you a little bit. Just going off the, the incubation idea, uh, the, like the, really the only reason why I am a devotee of Akate is because I did the headless right. And then that night I had a dream about in like living in a board house. My uh, Luke was teaching me and my old co-host Alden about the PGM. And I went and talked to the owner of the board house and she was a devotee of Akate. And I told Luke about this dream and he was like, well, maybe that's who answered your headless right call. And so I set up an altar and then all of a sudden synchronicities out the ass about Hikata <laughs> never shown up before. 
And that's what kickstarted a lot of stuff for me, actually. Yeah, I love it when it lines up like that. Like uh, like the spirit I mentioned before uh, with the Venomous Breath. Um, not a couple weeks after that, I was in London for work. And uh, I went out. It was right around the... Um, was it some Thelemic holy day? I'm, I'm a terrible Thelem. I don't remember the names of the holy days, but it was like a <laughs> feast uh, thing right when they do like the invocation for us. Um, so it's around like the time of the writing of the book of the law, I think. And so like I went out that, that evening with all of the uh, local OTO people and like had dinner and stuff. And, uh, on the way home, um, I was like walking. I was trying to walk back to the train station with uh, with this guy that that I had been talking to um, there about the operations. And I was like convincing him. I was like, hey, you know, you should look into contacting the spirit like she's done great things for me and she could probably help you out, too. And I was like, well, do you have any idea how to get to the, the, the train station? And he was like, absolutely not. And we were both kind of drunk. So I was like, OK, well. Let's do some psychic word writing. I was like, I'm going to just point in the direction that feels right. And we're going to walk in that direction. And so uh, what, do, what do they call that? I don't know. Soraya. It's like the thing where you like. Uh, like dowsy? Like, no, it's like where you just like walk around a city and you like let, let intuition take you. Synchronicity. Uh, okay. Is there a term? Yeah, there's some word for it. I can't remember it off the top of my head now. But it, anyways, I've, you know, I've, I just like. I've done it. I've done it in the wilderness. I've never done it in the city. Yeah. And, and so we were, we walked like a block or two and I asked him, I was like, cause I'd been talking to him the day before about the, uh, the entity and whether or not, you know, he should contact her and stuff. And, uh, I asked him, I was like, Hey, did you, um, did you think any more about what we talked about? And he was saying, yeah, you know, I looked into it. I did a couple little things. And right then I look behind me and there is a nightclub and in giant red letters is the name of the nightclub, which is Ashtar. <laughs> and, you know, the, the spirit that we were talking about was Astaroth. And so at that point, I realized I was just, it was just one of those little nods, you know, it's like, hey, you know, I see you. I see you there. Yeah. You, you, you sure you sure you weren't about to become a contactee? <laughs> was it an Ashtar you know, command? The Grimoire Verum does say that Astaroth is the uh, the governor of the new world. Mm. So it's not, uh, not unsurprising that Ashtar um, was part of, you know, American ufology. <laughs> Uh, so the guy that I'm probably going to have as my new co-host, um, he's very he's been doing magic for 20 years and uh, he's very into euphonaut stuff. And mm. one of the things he really wants to do is use magic to contact the euphonauts and uh, get information from them using magic or just get, you know, use magic to get information on them, something like that. But, yeah, that's one of his big magical goals. How, so does, do you, how, how does he define euphonaut? Um, I haven't really talked that much about it. I know that he's very into uh, Alan Greenfield, and oh, that, okay. yeah, I was I was gonna say a similar line to what Sarai was thinking there. Like, do you think that there's any useful distinction between euphonaut and spirit? Yeah, no, just a face. Yeah, that's what I'm I would ask. think too. Sarai, I wanted to ask you. Well, actually, this question is for everyone, but. Um, so when you asked about like, you know, how much of this stuff is just made up and then it kind of became manifest through people doing what was actually made up. So in chaos magic with, uh, sigil stuff, you know, you create an intention, you write it down, you take out the certain letters and you make a sigil out of it. Do you think it's at all possible that when people are doing that, they are unknowingly writing out the sigil of a, maybe like an unknown spirit that, <laughs> that is know. their sigil, just not really... It's never been written down. No one's ever contacted that spirit before because I didn't know what sigil. And then someone like just, you know, unbeknowing, you know, unbeknownst to them drew the sigil of the spirit. And that becomes what works for them. Like, you know, they end up contacting that spirit thinking it's just an emanation of their will and intent. 
I'm not even sure that the spirits that we say, think we know are actually what they seem to be. Okay, that's fair. You know, the thing about sigils that I love is um, if you think before written language, you know, our language was pictures. And that, I think that's one of the reasons that we think in a, a certain order and things like that, because we're making a story to tell ourselves. Um, but, you know, there's something very primordial about breaking things down into a, a symbol that has coherence for yourself, but doesn't have coherence for anybody else. Um, there's there's something very fundamental about uh, us that uh, is in there. So but to more directly answer your question, I could certainly see that being a possibility. And uh, there's also this, you know, crosses my mind that uh, these entities, big ideas, whatever, uh, can have more than one way to get in touch with them or more than one sign for them or something like that. Sure. These are just the ones that we know. That's a good point. There's actually multiple spirits in the uh, grimoires that have multiple sigils. Uh, but it, it and this is kind of like an objective aspect of Solomonic stuff that the spirit is intrinsically tied to their sigil. If you want to like, you know really piss it off and really have it at your mercy, burn their sigil or put it in the uh, the stinking black box and they'll do whatever you say because that sigil, like, it's almost <laughs> a physical emanation of them. A stinking uh -huh. black box? Yeah, so it's this black box. It's a newer part of the, the grimoires and it's got, like, all, it's got coals in it. It's, you can put asphatita in it, all these, like, really terrible things and put the sigil in that and it'll just, just you know, the, the spirits really hate that for some reason and that kind of goes back to... Uh, how uh, spirits seem to be really, really sensitive to smell. And that's why the preparations, you can't eat meat or have sex, because obviously there is kind of like a spiritual purity aspect to it. But a lot of magicians have said that it seems to be very practical in the sense that if you do eat meat and if you do have sex and you step into a circle, those spirits can smell that on you and they really don't like it. Yeah, I mean, that's Skinner's thing. I... I don't know how much. I mean, I don't want to disagree with Stephen Skinner, the illustrious Stephen Skinner, but <laughs> I think that smell thing maybe is a red herring or like like it's a correlation does not equal causation kind of thing. Like, I, I think the asceticism of Solomonic magic is just a means to an end uh, to like get to a flow state. Um, because I mean, I don't know how many of you guys have done like long term fasting, but like I've done like seven days, no food at all. Uh, and you, once you get to about seven days without eating anything and just drinking water, like you start to get really loopy, Yeah, you know, and like, getting yourself into a trance state is fairly simple at that point. And I, I think that there's, there's multiple ways to that trance state, like, you know, the Western magic, ceremonial magic, traditional grimoire magic, like half of that is asceticism, like abstaining from everything, isolating yourself, you know, uh, doing lengthy re recitations, prayers, uh, confessionals. Um, but then there's also like like the Taoist uh, method of doing spirit contact where you cause yourself physical pain. Like you, you know, slap your naked skin with like chains and, and hooks and barbs and stuff and like bleed all over the place and uh, get yourself into a trance state that way. I mean, there's also just like ecstatic dance, uh, drugs. And I mentioned like the the treading the mill, the, the entire concept of that is that you're walking in a circle uh, over and over and over again, and you have your head tilted back and slightly to the left or the right, and it cuts off blood flow to the brain uh, very minutely, but enough that, you know, between that and then just walking in a circle constantly until you fall over, then, uh, you know, the spirits start to come out. But I definitely agree that there's definitely that element of kind of like self-induced trance to contact spirits. 
Yeah, because I, I think you're trying to get into that hypnagogic state, right? right Where spirit right. contact is like possible. I, I don't think spirit contact is possible, like without being in that state. Like all of the most dramatic, like black mirror scrying things that I've I've done, uh, were all when I was kind of like half asleep. You know, like you you stare at the mirror for so long, you start falling asleep, and it's like that borderland uh, is where you really start seeing the images and stuff appear. Well, yeah, and that and that's why someone who doesn't believe in this stuff is never going to understand it because they they want a physical material thing to latch onto. Yeah, and the world the world is not just a material thing. You know, some people though too. I, I think about this a lot. Some people, I think, almost everyone has an experience of this sort during their life. Like I, I don't remember what the uh, statistics on it were for like out of body experiences, but almost everybody has had at least one out of body experience during their life, even if it was like a near death experience. I had a really weird out of body experience with a uh, an ex when I was fifteen. It was really weird. I was in a hotel in New York. My dad was on a business trip with like uh, his girlfriend and their kids and and me, and I was talking to this girl for a couple weeks. And I remember laying in the hotel bed and we were just talking about nothing in particular. And then all of a sudden me and her are in like this purple cosmic sphere. And there's a uh, a guy with, I don't know, it was just an alien uh, with like tentacled heads. And I guess he was like marrying us or something or something like that. And when I snapped to, I was like, what was that? And she was like, I don't know. You saw it too. And we both had this like mutual experience. That's well, cool. she was in Maryland and I was in New York. It was really weird. Still can't yeah. explain that. And as far as I know, I've tried talking like I haven't talked to that girl in years. But when I did try and talk to her about it, like she said that it was part of why she's in therapy now. Please don't ever bring it up. Something like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You went to the Mauve zone. Yeah. yeah all right. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. I mean, but some people have these experiences and they still like don't believe in any of the stuff. You know, like I, I know people in my personal life that have had out of body experiences that have that have done magic with me. And and like the effects of the magic have happened like immediately and like to the full extent that we conjured for. And they still are like, it's all in your head. It's it's right. just it's just make <laughs> I've got a much proof they have. They will never, ever believe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've got a, an older family friend that uh, in an offshoot of Christianity, I guess, would be what I would characterize it as. And uh, he would have he would talk about glowing entities showing up in his bedroom at night. And for him, it was, you know, an angel related to his faith. And uh, never considered it as being anything outside of that. And, of course, I was always afraid to mention anything to him about it anyway beyond that. But I, I've often wondered, uh, particularly like in the Bible Belt and places like that, where if you do have these experiences, do you tuck them away and rationalize them uh, in relation to your faith or something like that? Well, if you're in that area, it's all demons. Yeah, right. Even if you're <laughs> not in that sometime. area. You yeah. know, though, I have come full circle on the on the grays or demons thing. Like when I was uh, like years and years ago, I remember reading all kinds of like weird web pages and stuff saying, OK, if you want to stop alien abduction, you have to pray to God. And these are really demons. And like, you know, thinking it was funny and being like, oh, this is really silly. Don't these people know these are aliens? <laughs> um, and then I started reading about like, you know, uh, the, you know, the connections to like owls and looking at the uh, folklore surrounding like the Striga or the Strix, like these uh, owls that um, hang out in the woods and attack travelers in the night and drink their blood and <laughs> 
and like I see like the Bernie relief and see the owls on it, and I'm like, no, actually these are just demons. Like <laughs> they're not, they're literally just little little blood sucking demons. Hmm. Folks, they're demons. <laughs> you know, the, um, Stolas, the uh, he. So in the I think the the Crowley uh, Mathers Grim uh, Goetia, he's said to have an owl head. Mm-hmm. A man with an owl head, but that's not actually what it was. He, it's a, a mistranslation. Um, he actually has a raven head or like a mm. sparrow's head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's interesting to me because people I've talked to people who've said like, yeah, I summoned that spirit and it did come with an owl head. And uh, I was on, uh, interesting. Like, did is it because they expected to see an owl head instead of a a a, um, a raven head or? Is that just what the spirit chose to show himself as? Right, right. I think there is a certain degree of expectation that goes into how they present themselves. Um, yeah, totally. Which is, I mean, that's that's why I enjoyed the one that that I did because I like didn't know what spirit we were going to be conjuring. Um, ah, you know, okay. only the operator knew. And, you know, I had this image of a man with a bird's head. Uh, you know, when we were like doing the operation. And then later when I saw a picture of it actually depicted in the grimoire, I was like, oh, it's a guy with a bird's head. Okay, that, that's literally what I saw in my head the day before. <laughs> um, so, like, I, yeah, I mean, I think they have forms, but also kind of like like the UFO thing. I think they sort of sometimes can just appear however you're expecting them to appear. Yeah, I think so. I, I've told the story on the, the show before, but not too long after my dad died, um, I fell asleep on my couch uh, at my mom's house. And then I, I, I woke up and I'm saying that in quotes. Uh, on the same couch and looked outside and uh, Jesus was standing at the end of our sidewalk. <laughs> but <laughs> it was a Caucasian brown haired man, not it, it mind you, I've been in anthropology at this point for a few years, too, at uh, college. So, you know, even uh, even though I, I, you know, would say I'm a mystic and, and not Christian, even by that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew that that wasn't what Jesus probably looked like if he existed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it worked for me in that moment. But it was something that was always so odd to me that I'm like, huh, you know, I guess this belief within me and where I grew up is so rooted mm-hmm. that, you know, whatever this was had to look like that for me as opposed to, uh, you know, someone that actually looked like they came from the Middle East. Yeah. Your, your deep down subconscious belief versus your, your conscious knowledge. Yeah, exactly. We're, you know how we people are, I look like Jesus? Huh? What's that? How many people tell me I look like Jesus? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's the hair. Yeah. We're nice. out of time. Uh, so where can people find you, Ren? Uh, yeah. So I have a blog at lemoren.com, which has some links to things like my, my Discord. Uh, if people want to chat. Um, I also am going to be at the Strange Realities Conference in which, Nashville. Which and, has probably already happened. Yeah, which has probably already happened by the time you listen to this. So if it has, uh, you know, go look up uh, go look up my talk slash uh, ritual workshop and let me know how silly we all look. <laughs> all right, Octavian? StrangedominionsPodcast.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and anywhere you can get uh, your podcasts. All right. And uh, Super Inframan, if people need to summon you. Uh, you can always find me on Instagram, and I'm hanging out on Twitter a little bit more these days. But uh, I warn you, I, I post a lot about giant monsters on there. What? <laughs> Big surprise. <laughs> all right. Thank all of you. Thank you. We do continue this conversation in a Patreon segment. So Patreons will get that a few days after this. If you want to become a patron, it's only $3 a month at the basic level, and uh, you get extra content all month long, as well as access to some special stuff here and there. You get the show a week early as well. 
Beyond that, everything you want can be found at wheretheroadgo.com. Archive of shows all the way back to the beginning. Merchandise. All kinds of stuff. And as I was putting this together, Mike Cleland uh, messaged me to tell me that uh, Alta Dillard has passed away. Uh, Her and her husband, Chad, came back or came on the show maybe eight years ago or so. I think we did three parts. Uh, They were really wonderful people. I really enjoyed talking to them. And uh, I will... I think if I have a chance, I will put together the shows I did with them into one show and put that up uh, in tribute to her. Uh, Really liked her. Really liked Chad, too. So that's unfortunate news. All right. I'm going to take you out with some radii. And these are a couple of friends of mine. And uh, it's spelled R-A-D-I-I, and it's pronounced radii. They did this around 2016. I don't know if they're really doing anything on this project anymore. The main guy, Greg, ended up being the bass player for Tengurf Cavalry, at least until uh, Nature, the main guy in the band, uh, passed away in 2019. Since then, he's been playing with a sort of dark vaudeville band called Peaches and Crime. But this this was his sort of uh, solo thing, so I guess he can probably do it anytime he wants. And considering the subject matter of tonight, I thought it fit nicely. This is a song called Left Hand Path. And I'll see you next time. The dark ones say there is no way to escape this holy wrath. The road to the end is painful, my friend. Your salvation and your soul's blood bad. I ride all night for the love and the light, and I'm looking for the left hand path. Is a penance for a sociopath. It's written in stone, or sins to atone, sick of dealing with the aftermath. I ride all night for the love and the light, and I'm looking for the left hand path. I aim to the left and pull to the right, always looking for the left hand path. The way it is now is the way it's always been. Hatred from without and the fire from within The devil in your head is an angel in your bed And the Lord of fucking
have been listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support.